here. <clears throat> Every time I listen, I'm always like in the beginning, over here, over here. Uh, there we go. <laughs> All right. So as we discussed uh, last week, so just so you know, I, I mean, there's actually a lot to be said about this. And so we're going to have a really brief session. I think later, sometime in the future, we'll have a whole series on this. But today we're going to look at this fairly briefly. Um, so psychology of atheism, who uses the so-called crutch? I'm sure. So here's Sigmund Freud. One of his quotes says, the idea of life having a purpose stands and falls with the religious system. Remember when we looked at meaninglessness last, last week and futility and vanity of vanities. So he's saying the idea of meaning, you know, really stands and falls with the religious system. It's not an objective thing. It's just this, this wish <laughs> projection, uh, that kind of a thing. Remember in the 18th century when, when we looked at the spontaneous generation, you know, and that carried over, even when it was proven to be absurd, that still continued. You know, the, the, remember in the Enlightenment, they were saying that the God hypothesis is no longer necessary to explain the universe, right? And so they basically, they piggybacked on that. And again, these people spent very little to no time proving the non-existence of God. They are saying, since God doesn't exist, here, you know, basically now what? And I'm sure um, we've, uh, and remember, we, we talked about um, homo religiosos, why are men and women incurably religious? Um, and, you know, that's what Freud did, you know, basically, since God doesn't exist, now what? That's what Freud was uh, really getting after. Marx, Marx, Marx said that the, uh, the opiate of the masses, religion was the opiate of the masses. You know, it's just this drug. It's this thing that we give our, that we, I don't know if you've ever heard, basically, uh, that, you know, when you talk to an atheist, I know I've heard this, that they basically say that religion is a crutch. You know, it's this, it's this thing that you have, that you put onto yourself to, to comfort you for all sorts of different things. And we'll get into that, but that's basically what it is. And what we're going to see, what we're gonna look at today is, does the crutch actually exist on the other leg? Is it really them who's using the crutch, okay? Okay, real briefly, four main reasons people differ as to theism and atheism. Epistemology, which we've discussed. So what we're going to, first of all, let me just say out at the outset, right? Because Freud is saying that basically we're, we're infusing this idea of God to comfort us and everything. And again, we're going we're gonna to look at all that. So, so the battlefield of God's existence doesn't happen on a subjective plane. It is objective. And that's where we have spent this whole time, this whole series, proving God's uh, existence, existence objectively. And we looked at Kant's moral argument last week, remember? where he's saying, there, if morality exists, what are the necessary components? And then, you know, uh, the nihilists, such as like Freud and Marx and uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and all of them are saying, you know, um, where was I going? LA. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. So 
that the that the religious person is biased. Basically, they say that the that the religious person is biased again, infusing God into their worldview, where we have to understand that the atheist also has just as much investment in the non-existence of God. Okay, so we have, we have two opposing worldviews really battling on a subjective plane, because I, I even admitted, you know, when, when those people said, you know, basically, just because, according to Kant's argument, just because the, the alternative to God's existence is grim, that doesn't make it true according to Kant's argument because it was a subjective argument. And so I completely agree with that because, again, the battlefield of God's existence doesn't, is not fought on a subjective plane. It's important as we go along. So remember in the very beginning of this series, I talked about reading different atheists and, and, and you know, seeing where their epistemology broke down. You know, we, we've, we, print, we, we are familiar with epistemology. A formal error is kind of like the, the uh, fallacy of equivocation. Remember when I had shown you that cats have nine tails? You know, when you use a completely, you know, the meaning of the term completely changes. And again, we will come back to this during the series, and I'll give you all sorts of examples. We are flying through this one. Factual errors, so this one has to do with the mind. This one has to do with actual evidence, you know, uh, empirical evidence. So factual errors insofar as what we can see and, and study with the senses and all that, okay? And psychological prejudice, that's what I was getting at, you know, they, oh, I'm supposed to be checking these off. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, again, I have to admit at the outset, at the very outset, all the fiber of my being craves the existence of God. I can't imagine a world where God doesn't exist, where all of this is just nothing. You know, my love for her, my love for y'all, our relationship, all of this is heading nowhere. So I, I have to admit, and we have to admit at the outset, that we do have a prejudice really, you know, toward God existing, right? And we'll get into even more of that uh, when we, when we look at that uh, again. But, because, but again, though, just because I strongly desire for there to be a God that doesn't have the power to create him, also, just because they're invested and they, they want strongly for there not to be a God, that doesn't have the power to annihilate him, right? So again, this is, this is uh, battled on uh, the uh, battlefield of objective truth, okay? So, what we're going to do is return back to, remember when we were looking at Romans 1, when we were studying natural theology. So, what we're going to look at is what Paul really says about this. Romans 1, 18 through 23. First of all, so, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Just so you know, just that very beginning part of this sentence provokes a tremendous amount of rage, not only in the atheist, but in a lot of Christians. There are a lot of Christians who, you know, love the idea of God, but they will not have a God of wrath. And just so you know, this, this word wrath, the Greek is orge, or we get the word orgy. What this is, is a violent, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mass of, of anger, what Paul is saying is that God isn't angry. God isn't just angry. He's furious. 
And what's he furious about? The ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, this is what's called a... Uh, what is it called? I think I have it. Hadiatus, some kind of a thing. Um, Hendiatus, yeah. So basically two words basically meaning the same thing. They're two different words, but he's using them to mean the same thing. Okay, so unrighteousness and ungodliness. That's what God's wrath is about. But what kind of ungodliness? What kind of unrighteousness? He names the child who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This word suppress, because we've talked about this. What is that word? Um, yeah, the root word is katakane. What this is, is a strong resistance. It's a strong pushing something down. Think of, I appreciate the, <laughs> the example, of a geyser of this, of, this, of this huge amount of water just wanting and, and really flushing up out of, the, out of the ground. And so you're there trying to keep it down. You're, put, you're putting all of your strength to suppress it, to push it down and keep it down. Because you know, if you relent at all, at all, that thing is going to come gushing up with a ton of power. And so what you're doing is suppressing. Now, what kind of truth do we suppress? Do we suppress happy thoughts? No. We suppress trauma. We suppress pain. Right? And again, that's where, you know, Freud is saying, you know, all of that psycho psychological analysis is true, you know, as far as that goes. We do suppress. If you go to a psychiatrist, right, and you're, and you're having these problems, you know, and you can't explain, you know, you don't know why. You're, ha you're having some angst, you're having some fear, you're having some anxiety. You don't know what it's from. You know, and you go to the psychiatrist, sometimes they'll do some ink blot, t ink, uh, blot tests for you, you know, and all this kind of a thing. But what they'll also do is they'll ask you questions, right? You know, they'll, they'll, they'll ask you, you know, what was your relationship with your father? Oh, no, you know, that was, that was fantastic. How was your relationship with your mother? My mother? <laughs> my mother? Why do you ask me about my mother? <laughs> my mother and I were fine. Why do you talk about my mother? Because what he's seeing now is the nonverbal communication, you know, where this will come out with certain, you know, clicking and stuff. Because what happens is even though we suppress this, this trauma down, it doesn't go away. And so how it comes out is far less traumatic as when it goes in, you know. And so it'll come out in these certain little ways, either any, a host of different ways. But that's what the psychiatrist is looking for. Um, and, you know, people can dismiss this, but not with impunity. I mean, you know, this is the Apostle Paul um, uh, talking about this. Um, yeah, I already talked about that. Okay, um, yeah, manifest is funny, Ross. So who suppressed it? Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. We talked about this, remember, during the general revelation. The, the um, uh, what was it? Uh, huh. <laughs> the direct and indirect. I don't remember what it was. But uh, God puts, you know, he manifests himself to you in all of creation and he manifests himself in you. Remember what we were talking about last week, where every man and woman has some sort of moral law written on their conscience and on their hearts, right? And that's what this is saying. This, this, is, this is manifest. God has shown this. 
And they, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Okay, that, that's, again, going back to the, his revelation. Even the things that are his, you look into the world, it couldn't have come from nothing, right? And, and, and his creation was invisible anyway. He spoke into existence, but we see the effects of his cause, okay? So the invisible attributes are clearly seen being uh, understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Let's remember that. Because although they knew, just so you know, we're breezing through this in a certain way, you know, uh, even although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. I, I want us to pay attention here. This is where the, the atheistic, atheistic uh, psychologists and philosophers are doing. And we're going to get into, not only do they do this, but they encourage other people to do this. But we'll get to there in a second. But became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God. So changed is um, meta-alasso. Uh, but, but that means basically to change or exchange or to transform. Okay. So they're taking, they're changing the glory, so they're exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and all this other thing. And just, so, idolatry, you don't need, you know, gold and silver and wood and stone to make an idol. We make idols of ourselves sometimes, you know, because just so you know, this suppression is, is, is global. We do this as well. Christians do this all the time. We want to have our own thing. We want to be autonomous as well. You know, we want to do our own thing and have our own whatever. And that is a suppression as well. Okay? All of us are just as guilty of that. I mean, less so, obviously. But anyway, so they, they exchange the glory of God for an, <laughs> for an image of corruptible man and, and creation. They change the glory of the creator to the creation. Okay? And this is what... The psychology now is doing, and that's what they're that's what they're encouraging. Again, we are briefly looking at this right now until we go through a whole series of this. Okay. So Romans one thirty two, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, this is known. It might be suppressed. Okay, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. They're not saying, they're not saying, you know, this is what we believe and so this is what we're doing. Freud encouraged, again, sexual deviancy for this revolution. Because since God doesn't exist, now we need to free ourselves from this bondage that we've inflicted upon ourselves from this God who doesn't exist. Okay? And so, again, this is just like Freud. This is just like those other... Um, philosophers and psychologists and so forth. Quickly, again, the psychology of atheism. You know, again, this is going to be a really brief overview until we look at this again. This is manifest in our own culture. You know, even Christians will go to, um, we uh, happen to watch, we're, we're going through this marriage study with R.C. Sproul, and he was talking about 
this uh, this this woman who was engaged, and she was having relations with her fiance before they were married. Okay, and she she felt really guilty, you know. And she went to her minister, and she's like, "Hey, you know, I, I you know I've been doing this, and I just I feel really guilty." And the minister says. Oh no, you know, you just feel guilty because, you know, you're 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 inflicting this puritan, you know, uh, philosophy, this this this, you know, moral law and all this kind of a thing. And so as as long as you understand that basically it's fine. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it, and that's basically the argument. Since everybody's doing it, you might as well do it. And that didn't help her. Didn't help her. So, she went to Sproul and she asked him, you know, "Hey, I'm, I've been doing this, and I feel guilty. And he said, you know why you feel guilty? Because you are guilty. To suppress reality doesn't get us anywhere. It gets us lost. It gets us doing the same and approving those who practice them. It's nonsense. This Holy Spirit convicts us, and we, if we ignore him, that is suppression. That is holding God down. We are called to <laughs> let go of the geyser. Let him rise in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls. These men and women in the world today go out of their way to suppress that. And I just want to make that a point. And again, we will go in far more detail uh, during the whole series. But does that make sense? Are we kind of clear? I mean, again, this is just a brief little shot in the dark, <laughs> just showing you real quickly. Because uh, I wanted to take a little bit of time kind of sidestepping our apologetics course. This still can, should and can be applied to um, apologetics, but we're kind of taking, we took a little detour, and next week we will, again, like I've been mentioning, uh, look at. Uh, apologetics insofar as the Bible is concerned and through that perspective. Okay, does anybody have any questions? No, everybody's okay? Okay, we're not reading Augustine today. We're going to read Jeremiah 31 through uh, 33. Um, this is going to be important really heading into the next... Um, into the next study. I wanted to put this picture because we've talked about the exodus and the, and the deliverance from slavery and bondage. We have passed through the waters, okay? We are on the other side of salvation. <laughs> we'll still murmur and complain and have our problems. But remember, when they passed through, the waters came down on Pharaoh and all of his chariots and all of his men. That's where the rest of the world is in the flood. All right. So, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the hand of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay, again, <laughs> we are going to briefly consider this. 
I will put my law in their minds. He's not saying he's going to put it on their minds. He's not, and he's not saying he's just going to show it to you. He says he's going to write his law, his precepts, his determination of right and wrong in our minds. In our minds. So, so we don't have to go to these two tablets of stone. We don't really even have to go to, to the 20th chapter of Exodus to look at the law. <laughs> he writes them in our minds. So we know when we come across anything, we know. And he writes them in our hearts, not on them, not on them. You know, you'll see, you'll see a person engrave their name on a tree, right? On, on a tree. And as it grows, the name grows. It'd be an incredible thing to write your name in a tree. How do you do that? God does. He writes them in our hearts and in our minds. So we know what the, the difference between right and wrong. God calls us to be holy. And I'd much rather be holy than happy. If, if I'm miserable and saved, thanks be to God, I, I, our salvation isn't measured by happiness and comfort. It's, it's measured by the grace of God. And I will be their God. There's so much there. there there's so much there. Do, do, you, do you need a God of comfort? He will comfort you. Do you need a God to save you? He will save you. Do you need a God to give you wisdom? James even says, you know, the, let a man who, who seeks wisdom ask God, but don't, let him not be a double-minded man, you know, let him ask in faith, knowing the faithfulness of our God will give exceedingly gladly all of the treasures in God, his truth, his love, his, 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 his holiness. His righteousness. Remember, the, the, I, I, have sent you, I have sent you to be a delight to the Gentiles, which was applicable to the, to the Messiah, to Christ. And then Paul uses it for us because his light is now in us. He has written it in our minds and in our hearts, and now we carry his light with us. I will be their God. There's just so much there, and they shall be my people. Every man and woman is created by God. So, essentially... All things belong to God. All people are, in that sense, his people. He's talking about a special, special way. I mean, if, if I can liken it to anything, it'd be similar to, well, I mean, I do love my dog. So, <laughs> I'll say, uh, it's like my love for my car. You know, when I talk about my car and I talk about my family, those are two different possessions. He's talking about, they shall be my people. They shall be my children. This is the God of all the universe coming in, <laughs> graciously saving us quickly. You know, I say I have this bias, I have this built-in prejudice for there to be a God. I was a very reluctant Christian. When I came, when I came to Christ, I didn't want to be a Christian. That's the last thing I wanted to be. But the testimony of who Christ is, and we can talk about that some other time. My, you know, the, the testimony of Christ exists in my testimony, but it is not his testimony. Altogether, anyway. But we can talk about that some other time. But, so, what, there's what, the covenants, the covenant of works, right, which was established even with Adam in the garden. You know, God says, don't do this, 
and Adam and Eve did it. And now, and Paul has talked about, Paul had talked about, we looked at it, how Adam was our first representative. So that in their sin, in his sin, we are all sinners. You know, and so the covenant of works, we, nobody, no, no man or woman has, has been saved or has perfectly fulfilled the covenant of works, except for one. Except for one. The one who came in the fullness of time to suffer all of his life. There's a reason we never see Jesus smiled. There's a reason we don't see Jesus laughed. He came to suffer and to serve and to save. Now, and now he, is, he has made a new covenant where he's writing his law in our hearts, in our minds, and that is a covenant of grace. What we could not do, what, what we are fallen from, God has done. Th these covenants, these covenants are not followed by us. There are signs which we'll see, we'll, we'll look at circumcision and baptism in our next study, and, and kind of how those two things compare, but it's not the circumcision that saves us. It, we are not saved by baptism, and we'll get to that, but it is a sign pointing back to the faith. Remember, circumcision was pointing back to that covenant of faith with Abraham, where he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. But now we are under the beautiful covenant of grace, not of works. All these psychologists, all these philosophers are concentrated on that, of the works. We do not believe in God just to escape hell. If you believe in God because you're scared of hell, I submit to you, you are not a Christian. That is one, you know, that's one thing. He does not save us from, he saves us to. He saves us to and in him. Yes, he saves us from the flames of hell. He saves us from the flames of our own heart and our own minds in our corruption, but he saves us to him by the wonderful, tremendous grace that he determined forever ago. And now he's doing, thanks be to God, he's doing that. We don't have to exist, and we don't have to be saved. There are many people, I mean, think about the people that, you know, they don't exist, so you can't think about the people that don't exist, but think about all the people who aren't under this covenant. And what a tragedy. What a tragedy to actually embrace the fact that, that life doesn't mean anything. And again, remember, Albert Camus even said, the only question left now to the philosopher is that of suicide. There is no God. There is no life. And they see it. They recognize it. And like Hemingway, they die that way. Let us... See God for who He is. Let us not 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 rest on this this wish projection. We don't hope for God to be. We hope for what He's promised. We long for that. We're waiting for that. That hope is not a vain hope. It's not a wish. It's a looking forward to. Okay. All right. Let's pray.
thank you for your abundant grace. Thank you for the mighty work you have done in and through your word, in and through your son, in and through your spirit. I pray you fill us with yourself that we might know you and we might not suppress your truth. Father, make us saints to please you. Make us like the angels to follow your every commandment gladly, happily, always longing to do your will. That is what pleases you. In your precious son's name we ask it. Amen. Do we even pray after that? I don't even know if we usually pray after that.